you would please open your Bibles, not to John 2, first of all, but to Romans chapter 14, please. Romans chapter 14. Because we're going to be talking about turning the water to wine. And some of you are thinking, yeah, preach it, brother. I love that wine. Some of you are probably thinking it was grape juice, you idiot. It was grape juice. Well, we're not going to get into a discussion about that. I'm just going to share a couple of verses of Paul's opinion on what it was. So in Romans chapter 14, verse 20, we read these words. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Notice the next phrase. Everything is indeed clean. But it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The issue in this, this verse is not drinking wine. The issue is causing your brother to stumble. And Paul makes that very clear when he says everything is clean. But if your participation in that clean thing is causing your brother to stumble, don't do it. Now, I know that in the Old Testament, there were two major groups of people who were forbidden to drink wine. One of them was those who took the Nazarite vow. You couldn't drink, you couldn't have anything to do with the grapevine. You couldn't eat grapes, couldn't eat grape, grape, grape juice, you couldn't drink wine, you couldn't have anything to do with it because you're under the Nazarite vow. The other one is the priesthood. If you were a priest in service to God, you were forbidden from drinking alcoholic beverages as a priest in the Old Testament. Now, let me ask you something. How would you distinguish the priesthood from the Nazarite and the Nazarite vow from the rest of the people? If you couldn't drink wine as a Nazarite vow and you couldn't drink wine as a priest, what does that infer about the rest of the people? I'll let you answer that on your own. Now, let's turn to John chapter 2. Let's turn some water into wine. Grape juice, brother. No, let's turn, let's turn some water into wine. John chapter 2. John is writing uniquely uh, from a perspective of different than all the other apostles. You know, you have the three synoptic gospels. They're similar with one, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And then John is like 90-some percent different than the other three. And that's because, see, you understand, John was writing this gospel in the last decade of the first century. All of the other apostles were dead at this time. The nation of Israel had ceased to exist for 20-some years, destroyed by the Roman general Titus in A.D. 70. The nation did not even exist. So John, writing the gospel, didn't need to repeat things that were said in the first three gospels that were written during the time period when there was a nation of Israel, when there was the historical Jewish nation, and all that's associated that with the law and, and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all of those other folks. John's writing his gospel to a world that does not even recognize Israel as a nation. In fact, the world would not even recognize Israel as a nation for a few centuries to come. 
from the time that John wrote his gospel. So he wrote it that, as we said, we must believe. He, uh, he comes to this wedding in Cana. Now, Cana is only about four miles away from Nazareth. It only takes about two hours to walk from Nazareth to Cana of Galilee. There's different Canas. This one's Cana of Galilee. And uh, we see in the first couple of verses here a week of rejoicing. Now, there is a lot of difference between the, the wedding ceremonies of that day compared to the wedding ceremonies of today. We would look at the wedding ceremonies of that day and we would not recognize anything. They would look at our wedding ceremonies today and they would not recognize anything. There's, and we don't have the time to go into that, but we, we do podcasts now on Mondays to follow up the sermon so that those of us who are sharing the Word of God on Sunday have an opportunity to, to share with you some things we didn't have time to get to in the sermon on Sunday. And that's what I'm going to be doing tomorrow in the podcast, is sharing with you what the weddings were like in that time period. You just remember the three C's. There was the contract, first of all, or sometimes called the betrothal. And there was where the father would agree with, uh, with whoever that his daughter would be married and they could be as young as one year old in signing this contract and they became legally married. But the second C is the consummation of that marriage and that's the physical act. And that of course happened, especially somebody that young, years and years later. And then following the consummation of the marriage would be the celebration. And that's where we find ourselves at here in John chapter two. Sometime in the past, this couple, there was a contract signed and they became legally married. And then there was a time very recently that they consummated that marriage in the physical act and now all of their family, friends, and everybody are gathered together for the celebration. And that's what we see as we read verses one and two. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there and Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. Jesus was invited with his disciples. By the way, that's John, Andrew, Peter, Philip, and Nathaniel. There's only five of them at this particular point. Jesus was invited, but the Bible doesn't say Mary was invited. Mary was there at the wedding. I suspect that somebody from Nazareth was probably one of the ones that got married and probably knew Mary and Joseph and had even possibly asked Mary to be a part of the organization and the running of this whole thing because when they do run out of wine, who deals with it? Well, Mary does. And Mary goes to Jesus, helps out, and then she ends up telling the She had authority to tell the servants, do whatever he says. And the servants listen. So I think Mary had something to do with this. That might have been a relative of theirs or certainly somebody that they knew. But Jesus was invited to the wedding. So there's that invitation. And then there's the celebration. How many of you have seen the, um, the uh, episodes of a program called The Chosen? A few of you have. I really like it. I'm really enjoying it. And it's put out by Dallas Jenkins and uh, son of Jerry Jenkins of the Left Behind series. And he's doing a pretty good job of retelling the life of the Lord Jesus Christ in, in this thing of the chosen. And uh, I loved it in, the, in season one. He's, through, he's released through episode three of season two so far. 
But in season one, one of the episodes was Jesus being at the wedding in Cana. And it's just so weird for me to watch that episode and watch Jesus dancing with the other people at the celebration. Does that seem weird to you? That Jesus would be dancing at a wedding celebration? I mean, like, could you tell him a joke? Would he laugh? I don't know. Well, my family would tell you they don't laugh at my jokes, so why would he? But it's interesting that they wanted Jesus to be at the celebration. And they invited him and his disciples to come to the celebration. Come, let's have a great time together. That's just, it's, it's, it's probably, you know, the Bible says that when a sinner repents, the angels in heaven rejoice. What, God the Father sits on the throne and going, angels, hold it down. Let's not get too excited here. No, I think they're pretty excited. I think they rejoice. I mean, look at King David. Boy, talk about embarrassing. When David got excited about the Lord, he was jumping up and down, dancing in the streets of Jerusalem. Nothing was said bad about that at all. There's nothing wrong we get about getting excited about the things of God. There's nothing wrong about getting excited about the things of life that we ought to be getting excited about. And Jesus was right there in the middle of it, having a celebration. Wow, that's a, that's a new picture of Jesus that I'm going to have to kind of get used to a little bit myself. But there only was a week of, of rejoicing because that's what they did back in those days. But there was an hour of concern. Notice verses three through five. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you to do. Let's pick out those two sometimes problematic statements that Jesus makes. Woman, what have I to do with you? <laughs> what does that mean? Well, to help you understand it, Let's reverse the conversation. We won't turn there, but in Mark chapter one and Mark chapter five, there is a very, very similar conversation that takes place between Jesus and demons. And it's kind of a reverse. Jesus walks onto the scene and here's this man who's, who's demon possessed. And the demon says, what have you to do with me, Jesus? Have you come to torment me before the time? And it's interesting, in Mark chapter five, the demon even calls on the name of God. Do you believe that? A demon calling on the name of God. He says, I assure you by God, don't destroy me before the time. I think it's just kind of hilarious that, that a demon would call God's name <laughs> to try and help him get out of trouble. That's just weird to me. But what he was doing was, you see, this statement is a, is a statement of realm of relationships. When the, when the demon said to Jesus, what do you have to do with me? You're over there. You're of that realm. You're, you're of that group. You're not part of my group. You're, you're not, we're, we're, we're separate from one another. It's like, it's like you walking over to Sam Galloway Ford there on Boy Scout Road and asking for the general manager of the store. You know, the guy who runs everything, sets the price and all that stuff. And, and so they, they take you to his office, you sit down to the office, and he says, what can I do for you? 
And he said, well, I wanted to tell you how to serve, how to sell cars better. And you, and you know, you need to do it with the prices a lot lower than what you're selling them right now. Amen, right? Well, you, you all hate Ford, do you? <laughs> anyway, can you imagine the general manager, would, general manager would look at you and go, what do you and I have to do with each other here? You see, it's, it's a statement of realm in relationships. There's nothing about putting her down. There's nothing negative about it. But you see, Jesus had grown up under Mary as his mother. But Jesus now is beginning his earthly ministry. And it is a time when he takes directions, not from his parents, but he takes directions from his father in living his life. So please understand, when, when Jesus says, woman, what have I to do with you? He's simply saying to Mary, Mary, the time of my being under your tutelage, the time of my being under your instruction has ended now. And it's time for me to, to take upon myself the direction from God the Father and to carry out the mission that he's called me to do. And, and, and my hour is not yet come. Because you see, the hour, you remember when Jesus did a lot of his miracles at the beginning, he didn't, he didn't really want to broadcast it. He would say things like, don't tell anybody, just go to the temple, present yourself to the priest, do the ritual thing under the law that you're supposed to do, and go on, enjoy being healed. He did that quite often. He, he didn't intend... He did not desire that the miracles that he did at the beginning in most of his ministry, that they were big flamboyant things where you, you called people to the stage and you hit them on the forehead and they fell over and everybody went, whoa, like some of these false fake healers do today. Jesus said, my hour has not yet come. Now that's not to say that Jesus won't do something. It's just that Jesus is saying, Mary, I don't take my direction from you anymore. I take my direction from the Father. So does that help you understand what it means when he said, woman, what have I to do with you? It's just a matter, it's a conversation about realm and relationships and, and who you take direction from at that point in your life. So there was this hour of concern. And then there is a moment for the miraculous in verses 6 through 10. Take a look at these. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine, it did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn it knew where the water, about the water. He said, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people are drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. There was direction provided in this moment of the miraculous. It first came from Mary. When Mary said, Jerry, Jesus said, woman, whatever, my hour's not yet come. And she very wisely understood what he was saying, was not offended by it all, and just said, she turned to the servants and she said, uh, whatever he tells you to do, you do it. Now, I've been ministry long enough that when Jesus sums to somebody and says, look, at there, there's something I want you to do, 
I don't find that the reaction to Jesus's instruction is quite like it was these servants. I mean, Jesus turned to them and said, you know that well, the public well out in, in, in the city? Yep. All right, I want you to grab some buckets. I want you to run out there and, and grab a bucket and pour it in these jars. Grab a bucket, pour it in these jars. Grab a bucket, pour it in these jars. It may take you a while, but that's okay. We, we need to get all of these jars filled up. And those servants looked at Jesus and said, yes, sir. And off they went. I mean, they went back and forth. They worked so hard that, and was so determined to get it right and do it to the best of their ability that by the time they got done pouring that last bucket of water in that last jar, every one of them jars, the Bible says, was filled to the brim. I have found sometimes in ministry when Jesus speaks to somebody who's been warm in a pew far too long, that they'll just kind of say, oh, can't you get somebody else? I'm busy. Oh, that's, that's just not fair. I just, uh, leave me alone, would you? I, I just like coming to church and listening to the message and singing the songs and going home. Well, that's too bad. You ought to stop that. Some of you have been warming the pew far too long. Do you get it? That when Jesus gave the instruction to his servants, the servants did it to the best of their ability. And when the servants did it to the best of their ability, then they drew out the wine and they gave it to the master of the feast. And the master of the feast said, this is the best I've ever had. You see, folks, when you and I will serve God the way he wants us to and serve God the way he deserves to be served, you're going to find out then that the best is yet to come. It's not going to be the worst. Oh, you want me to do this? You want me to do that? You want me to... That's, that's, going, that's just not going to be fun at all. Well, it may not be fun at all if you drag your feet and do it half-heartedly and, and don't put yourself into it at all. Well, you, you got nobody to blame but yourself if you do that. But if you and I would serve, I'm a piece of clay. I'm nothing. God picked me off of the assembly line of a GMC truck and strokes uh, assembly line factory in Michigan when, it's, when he wanted me to... When he wanted to use this for his glory. But I can tell you something from experience, folks. If you will give your life to whatever God wants you to do, it'll be the best you've ever had. It really will. And it's, it's miraculous, it really is. We don't create it, we don't do it. It's God that does it in us and through us as we surrender to what he has for us in our lives. Oh, it was the miraculous of the moment of when Jesus decides what he's going to do and he involves his servants to get it done. And when the servants do it, everybody else says, man, that's the best I've ever had. That 
can be said of you if you'll serve God and give it, give it to him what he, what he deserves. It'll be the best. There is direction provided, and boy, the best was proclaimed. There are some purposes for the miracle that we're told in verse 11. It says this, this the first of his signs Jesus did at Canaan in Galilee, manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. If you got the old King James Version, you know that in verse 11 it says, this was the first of his miracles. But it's, it's more accurately translated signs as it is in the, in the, the more modern translations because that's what, it is a, it's a meaning of something that, it is something that's done that has meaning or direction or instruction. It's a sign if you, you, uh, you know, if you, you well, they're, they're, well, I don't know what they're doing on I-75 at Colonial, do you? Boy, there's all kinds of construction going there. And I know you, you move over the one lane, you move over the other lane. Sometimes you have to merge left or merge right. And if you don't pay attention to that, science signs there for a message to instruct us to what, do what we're supposed to be doing. And that's what Jesus is saying. Jesus performed this sign because it was a message. It was instruction. It was in direct direction for these guys. Well, first of all, we know in that verse, it says that he manifested his glory. Jesus did this miracle that they might see in that sign of a little bit more of who he is and manifesting the glory of God. But it also says that the disciples believed. And, and that was part of the sign. I am doing this miracle so that you might get the message. And the disciples began to get the message and they began to believe in him. Believe in who? Well, I'd like to just share some verses from the Old Testament with you to show you that the sign that he did here really had a lot to do with the prophecy of the coming Messiah. Notice these verses. Uh, Isaiah 25, 6, first of all. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. You see, in understanding the Messianic prophecies of the Old Testament, the Jewish people in, in reading those things and understanding them would know that when the Messiah comes, associated with that was some pretty good wine. And that's what we have here in what Jesus created on that day. But notice Amos chapter 9, verses 11 through 13. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes who sows. The mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. Again, there's this reference to wine and the abundance of wine when the Messiah comes. Well, listen to Isaiah chapter 62 about marriage. You shall no longer be termed forsaken. Your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called my delight is in her and your land married. For the Lord delights in you and your land shall be married. And notice what things go on in a celebration of a wedding ceremony in this next phrase. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. It's just so interesting that at a wedding ceremony where, where God talked about the Messiah when he comes and restoring the nation of Israel, there's going to be this idea of married to the land. And there's going to be an abundance of wine. 
And then Jeremiah 31, 12 and 13, they shall come and sing aloud on the height of Zion and they shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord, over the grain, the wine and the oil and over the young of the flock and the herd. Their life shall be a watered garden and they shall languish no more. And here again, the idea of this celebration at the wedding. Then shall the young women rejoice in the dance and the young men and the old shall be merry. I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. And that's exactly what Jesus did at this wedding ceremony, in this celebration, when he turned the water into wine. This was the first sign. This was the first message. This was the first direction of who he is. And he was demonstrating them that for those who knew the prophecies of the Old Testament But there's another lesson that I want us to learn from this as well, and that is Jesus' compassion. In that day, if if they had run out of wine and nothing had happened about it, they would have forever been known as the family who ran out of wine at the wedding. I mean, 50 years later, they'd have been walking down the streets of that town and walked by their house and go, that's the house you wouldn't believe it. Years, Years ago now, but... They ran out of wine at the wedding. And it would have been a shame for them for the rest of their life. Now, all of us have some kind of shame in our lives. I have shame in my past. Something we've done, maybe something we've said, maybe a lie we told, or maybe it was something that we took, or maybe it was an action that we committed. I don't know what it is, but all of us, all of us have something in our past that we are ashamed of. And sometimes we try to excuse it. Sometimes we try to deny it. Sometimes we try to hide it. Sometimes we try to bury it with good works. But the fact of the matter, it's still there and it's shameful when we think about it. When Jesus turned the water into wine on on this occasion, here's what he did, folks. He took their shame and he turned it into honor. Let me read you a verse from 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 6. 1 Peter 2, 6 says this, for it stands in scripture, speaking of Jesus, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Will not be put to shame. Jesus is interested in taking our shame and turning it into his glory. And he's really good at it. I mean, he's really good at it. He'll do that. Morgan Cryer had a song many years ago. I don't know if I can remember the words. It happened so long ago. I cried out for mercy back then. I pled the blood of Jesus. Please forgive me of my sin. But I just can't forget it. It just won't go away. So I I pled again. Lord, wash my sin. But this is all he'd say. What sin? What sin? That's as buried as far as the east is from the west. What sin? What sin? It was gone the very moment you confessed. I love that song by Morgan Cryer, What Sin? You know, it has been such an encouragement to me from time to time 
when it happened so long ago, but it comes back up and we feel ashamed of it. And we cry out to our father and he says, my child, I have forgiven that sin. I don't remember it. Let it go. And let me honor you with a life. Let me honor you with friends. Let me honor you with family. Let me honor you with abilities and gifts. Let me honor you with opportunities to serve. Let me take that shame and turn it into something of good. Something that when Jesus changes it, it's the best. It's the best. Now in closing, I just want you to notice that in John chapter one, Russell was preaching, he pointed out, and I think it's in verse 39, that they came to Jesus and they said, where are you staying, master? And he said, come and see. And they went to where Jesus was. And that's kind of the beginning of a relationship with God. The Holy Spirit works in our hearts and he draws him to himself. We get under the teaching and preaching or reading of God's word and we begin to get where Jesus is and, and learn about him and, and who he is and how wonderful he is. That's chapter one. But the beginning of chapter two is an interesting switch in things because there they said, where are you staying at? And he said, come and see. And they went to learn about Jesus. But as they learned about him in chapter two, the Bible says they invited him to the wedding. And that's so much a point of establishing a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. It's one thing to go and see Jesus and find out who he is and learn of him. But have you ever gotten to the place in your life where you have invited him to be where you are? Have you invited him to come in your life? Have you invited him to be a part of your celebration, of your life? And trust me, when you do that, when you let him come into your life, into where you are, and part of your celebration, things will go wrong. But if you and I will listen to his instruction and his direction and do what he tells us to do and do it to the best of our abilities, it will turn out for your best. And you will praise God for it. <laughs>